1: There was something about that chair that in that moment, I just felt like I really need this. Um, And so I I dragged it home and I put it in my room. And ultimately, it ended up being where I sat for seven days. This chair became sort of a whole country in and of itself where where I went to grieve and to reckon with my life and try to find my way out of this dark period. Everyone
0: in my life knows that books light me up. And on this show, I have the amazing opportunity to sit down with great authors and get inside their heads. And I want to share them with you. I want to bring them into your homes and into your ears. I want you to have such a good time inside their heads and inside their books that they light you up as well. On this episode, I speak with Nadia Awusu. We talk about what it was like for her growing up all over the world, her love of jazz and the healing power of a rocking chair. We also talk about her incredible memoir, Aftershocks. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood and this is Lit Up. Thank you so much for joining us on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So this is the question I think we have to ask everyone at the moment, and it's pretty simple. It is,
1: how are you? (laughs) I know that's such a complicated question these days. Um, I guess my quick answer is that I'm hanging in. Um, You know, it's been a really difficult year for so many of us, I think, but um, I've really been trying to find places of just comfort and joy and connection to the extent that I can. Um, with loved ones and people out in the world who I might not be able to see so much, but just trying to stay connected.
0: I am so excited to be here in this moment talking to you.
1: You describe your exquisite
0: book, Aftershocks, as both a literary memoir and a cultural history. And in it, you examine all these competing identities that you've grappled with, one as being a young girl without a present mother, and the other as being uh, the daughter of a father who's a beloved figure at the United Nations. And what comes from that is an incredibly worldly childhood with all these experiences in Tanzania, England, Italy, Ethiopia, Uganda, before making your way to the United States you also grapple with inheriting trauma the search for belonging and the meaning of home and i'm wondering today how you identify yourself right now
1: thanks for that question and that that, that nice introduction So often when I was younger and people asked where I was from, it was almost like an anxiety inducing question because I was always thinking about what are they actually asking? What do they know? How much of myself do I reveal? Am I going to be questioned? You know, I always felt like there was nowhere that I could call home in in a way that was uncomplicated. And so my answers always seemed very difficult for people to understand, maybe even raised a little bit of skepticism, you know. And so there was always this anxiety attached to it. But now I feel that in part because of writing this book, which in some ways for me was sort of an act of reclaiming all of the homes that I've belonged to and all of the many places and cultures that I belong to, you know, my mother being Armenian American, my father being from Ghana, and then growing up in all of these different cultures, I actually think that that is who I am and my my identity is multiplicity in some ways.
0: Well, we have to talk about the fact that your title is Aftershocks and it speaks very directly to the phenomenon of earthquakes, but also both the the real ones that we experience that shake the earth, but also the kind of metaphorical earthquakes and the the, the fault lines and shocks that run through our lives. Can you tell us about the first earthquake and how that had such a huge impact on you in childhood?
1: Sure. So my mother left when I was two. Um, when I was seven, we were living in Rome. And, you know, after a long absence, my mother showed up at our house where my sister and I lived with my father and stepmother on the same day that I learned. My father always listened to the BBC in the morning. And so that day on the news, they were talking about a catastrophic earthquake that destroyed a city in Armenia. I remember the voice on the radio talking about the possibility of aftershocks. And so I asked my father what aftershocks were. And he said, they're tremors that follow an earthquake. They're the Earth's delayed reaction to stress. And then my mother showed up that day. Um, My Armenian-American mother showed up that day. And she took my sister and me to lunch. And, you know, this was like the first time that we had spent a significant amount of time with her in years. And then that evening, she dropped us back at our house and, and she left again. And I think because my mother is Armenian American, because my father and I generally didn't talk very much about her, and then her showing up on the same day as this earthquake in Armenia, the sort of private shaking and having my world kind of Upended And the confusion that I was feeling and this grief that I didn't realize that I had kind of conflated with the actual seismic event. And I did become somewhat obsessed with earthquakes. And this obsession sort of fermented as I got older and lived through other disasters. And I do think that I started to kind of see the world in some ways. In seismic terms, even though I wasn't fully aware that I was living inside this metaphor, it was always something that was sort of present in the language that I use and in how I looked at the world.
0: From the trauma of this day, there's a physical response that you name and give a name to that comes back many times after and during your having a traumatic response again. What do you call it? And has the machine kind of become more gentle as the years have gone on
1: yeah so um so i called the machine my seismometer and uh, a seismometer is actually what what we use to measure earthquakes and inside of me my own sort of understanding of my personal quaking at grief and loss and confusion about my identity, like that's what I kind of called the, the sort of um, machine in my brain that was sort of measuring the, the my own personal and private disasters. And a lot of the time, you know, it's fight or flight, that response that we all have, that I think people who experience trauma, it never shuts off. For me, it was always this feeling of impending danger that another disaster was going to come and sort of measuring how bad it was now and how bad it was going to get. And I do think that in part through the work that I did to sort of reckon with the griefs that I had long tried to avoid, that it has become gentler. And, you know, we, we all still have that response. And, you know, I do still wrestle with with um, my trauma but i have done a lot of work to sort of be able to to speak to that machine now and say actually th- we're not in danger at the moment um and so yeah i think over time i have I, I it's still present but i've developed a much healthier relationship where it isn't driving all of my life choices
0: when you were growing up did you have a sense of what your father's job was and How important it was.
1: Yeah. So he, my father, always spoke to my sister and I as though we were grown ups in a lot of ways. And so, you know, as we were sort of traveling the world for his job, and he worked for the UN agency that responds to famine caused by drought and war. So he was often kind of traveling to refugee camps around the world and uh, facilitating um, emergency food aid to people who were kind of in really desperate situations. And he would tell us a lot about the work that he did and the people that he met and very much always emphasizing that we're all connected. Our lives looked different from those people, but we were not disconnected from them and that we always had to be aware of of that sense of connection and to nurture it. And so I did have this sense of like he was making a contribution to make the world better. And he connected with people also on a very human level. Like he would always come back with stories about the individual children or parents that he would meet.
0: Was there one moment in your childhood where you were very much aware of your privilege as a child that you could go behind those UN gates into those gated communities whereas um, the people that your father was there to help were outside of that protective zone?
1: Yeah, I mean, specifically, so we lived in Ethiopia in Addis Ababa during the civil war that ultimately split the country into two, Ethiopia and Eritrea. And I was a child at the time, so my memories of it are very specific in a lot of ways, but also I didn't have such a clear sense of the history that was being made all around me. But I was very aware that, you know, we went to the international school, and then we returned home, and we would drive through this, uh, these gates that were guarded by armed guards, and we had a treehouse in our backyard. And so my sister and my friend, we lived in a UN compound, and so my sister and my friends and I would climb into the treehouse, and on the other side of the wall... There was a really large shanty town, and so we were very much aware that we were sort of living in this kind of oasis in the middle of a lot of poverty. Especially as the fighting started to move gradually into the capital, also aware of this danger that we felt that we would be protected from, because of course we knew that there were contingency plans. My family talked about it: if the war breaks out in the capital, you will be evacuated to Nairobi, you know. And so we always had a sense that we were going to be cared for and taken care of. And my father was very open about that, too, that, you know, in some ways we were dropped into this place that we wanted to find some connection to. But we also had an enormous amount of privilege. And he always emphasized how much that privilege came with responsibility and didn't want us to turn away from what we were seeing. Um, and so it was always sort of emphasizing that connection um, to the people around us as well.
0: You used the word oasis and it just made me connect to an oasis that you had as a child and that was in your father's study. And it sounds like that wherever you were in the world, because you moved so often, he created a kind of study that was actually your domain and that your stepmother, that she was kind of left out of that that um, intimate space. Can you talk about what it was like to kind of, I'm sure, pad into the room when he was busy, but just quietly start reading yourself, and how that influenced your love of literature?
1: So, in in many ways, um, I did always think of wherever my father was as home, and you know, I had a kind of a, a complicated, competitive relationship with my stepmother, but with my father there was always this very deep love and connection and, so uh, no matter where we lived around the world, one constant was that he had a space that he where he worked in our house, and that that was my domain. My my stepmother's domain was sort of their their room, their shared room, and then also sort of the living room. But I could always kind of slip into his study, and um, he would give me things to read, or he would give me a writing exercise, and I would sort of lie on the floor on my belly, kind of sketching um, and illustrating my own little novels that I would then turn into him stapled. And he would give me, he was my first editor. He would give me his editorial feedback on them. And we'd have these wonderful conversations about what was going on that day and what was going on in his life. And that did always feel like a safe space to me and and in a way was like a daily coming home um, just to spend that time with him.
0: Well, you mentioned your stepmother and I think I mentioned it too. I have a stepmother and I think you mentioned so Beautifully in the book, that every good story needs a villain. And for so many of us who've had blended families in some way or another, that inherited half parent that you desperately don't want to claim as your own is often a really great villain for a child to kind of load all their anger, resentment onto. When did your father meet your stepmother, and how was it having a woman come into the family?
1: Yeah, so my mother left when I was really young, when I was two, and so I, I don't really remember her being around. For a time, my sister Yasmin and I were sent to live with our aunt in England um, because of my fa- the nature of my father's work. He had to travel a lot for work, as I said, and so he felt like he didn't want to leave us alone with babysitters or nannies for long periods of time. And so we went to live with my aunt, with whom I have a very loving, caring relationship. She is a mother figure to me. But then when my father met my stepmother, he decided that it was time for my sister and I to come and live with them in Rome, and they were planning on getting married. And so at that time, you know, I was very young still. I was, you know, in kindergarten or or first grade, and um, I was very excited about returning to live with my father. He was always sort of the great hero of my life. And even when we were in England, he would come and visit really often. And so I was naturally, before even knowing my stepmother, very suspicious and sort of resentful that there was this other person who was you know, coming into the house at the same time as me and sort of distracting from the attention that I was going to get. And, you know, our relationship was very complicated in a lot of ways, but it was really important for me in the book to also interrogate what I was bringing into those complications of that relationship and how I had chosen to see her and where my empathy ended, you know, and how I kind of made her a one-dimensional person in my own story because it suited my narrative. And I felt that that was really important to like honor her complications as well as my own complications, um, and sort of look at why we need villains in our stories and and how certain people become villains in our stories.
0: In the very beginning of your memoir, you have this incredible note about truth and time, and I want to just read it because I actually kind of let out a like guff, like a uh, like a laugh or a, an acknowledgement of you nailing down a truth that I hadn't quite had words for before. So you say, I write toward truth, but my memory is prone to bouts of imagination. Others remember events differently. I can only tell my virgin. This does not mean that I do not also believe theirs. And I think so many people, you know, write a forward to a memoir and they say this is my version and everyone has their own, but I don't think many people go over the very next step, which is to say their version is also true. And I'm wondering why was it important for you to really make that explicit? And how do you feel about us all walking around with our different truths of these, of the same events, if I can even say they're the same?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very tricky thing, because especially in this, in this time that we're living through now, where facts are suddenly up for debate, things that, you know, should not be up for debate are up for debate. And so I, I do want to make the distinction between sort of facts and truths, right? There are certain events that happened, and we all know that they happened. And like, if we say that they didn't happen, then we're lying. On the other hand, Everyone experiences events differently and the things that we remember and we take away from them and our own intentions behind them and our own experience of them and how we feel in our bodies about these events will lead us to tell a particular story about what happened. And so that is those stories that we tell are true because they are grounded in our lived experience of the facts, if you will. But on the other hand, I also, because this book in some ways was, for me, a way of writing myself to deeper connection and understanding of other people in my family and of the world and um, the cultures that I come from. It was really important to me to acknowledge that there was a lot that I didn't know, for example, about my mother or my stepmother and how they were engaging with the same sort of events or facts that I was. And what intentions they were bringing, what complications and challenges they were bringing. And so I wanted to to honor that and to note that, you know, these were my feelings, these were my experiences, but there was so much that I didn't know and that I continue to not know. And, you know, some conversations that we've had that have actually illuminated um, some of the reasons behind choices that people made that I might not have understood at the time. And so it was really important for me to also center the, the truth that their stories are just as valid and just as real as, as mine. But, you know, I could only tell my version and this was my story. It's
0: almost like a revisionist history project of going, this is how I feel about these people and this is what I believe. But you've spent years reexamining those kind of memory grooves. How have they shifted now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think that in a lot of ways, writing this book, which sort of starts with these intimate moments of me and my family but then also pans out to the context in which we were living whether that's you know the immediate context of living in the war during the war in Ethiopia or the context of my mother's decisions being shaped by the reality that she descends from genocide survivors and the ways in which her mother was not able to be present because of inherited trauma my grandmother was a very loving person but she had her own trauma to reckon with and I wanted to kind of trace the ways that our decisions and the choices that we make are shaped by these larger forces, seismic forces, if you will, in the world, and that helped me to develop a, a deeper sense of understanding for you know how my life came to be the way that it was, um, the choices that that people made around me that affected my life, and also I found ways in which you know things that I had gone through as an adult. That people in my life had, were going through that as a child I had no understanding of, and how difficult those times were. And so I also found myself feeling more compassion for my family members and the people around me as well.
0: And it's also there to protect you in some ways, isn't it? Like our physical responses to stress are there to help us. There is a scene in the book that just devastated me because I could sense what it must have felt for you. And it's when you have dinner with your stepmother, what age were you when she came to visit New York and you had this conversation? Um, Just for our listeners, your dad, I'm so sorry, passed away when you were uh, just before your 14th birthday and your stepmom helped raise you. And I'd love to hear more about this in your words, but kind of how did it culminate in this very important but devastating conversation?
1: After my father passed away, you know, my mother still did not come for my sister and I. And so my stepmother did kind of take my sister and I in, um and continued to to sort of be a mother figure in my life until I turned 18 and moved to the United States for college but we did continue to have a very complicated relationship and still do when I was in my late 20s she came to New York where I was living and you know I would see her once in a while when she would come to New York for work or you know to shop or on holiday and so she came and we had dinner and we got into a little bit of just a petty argument um and then through that petty argument she sort of revealed or lied. I still don't know. And ultimately, I decided that it doesn't really matter to me very much to know. But this revelation was that um, my father had not died of cancer, as I'd always thought that he had died of AIDS. And that revelation really sort of destroyed me because I had constructed this story of my father and our lives together and who I was to him in that I felt like I was someone that he could always confide in and that I knew him so well. And there was nothing in my story about sort of secrets um, or this life outside of of the life that he lived with with me um, you know and that's a very self-centered thing you know i very much centered myself in his life and of course and as a grown up i can see that of course he had secrets and a life outside of what he would reveal to his children but at the moment because my grief had so long been a place that strangely i would turn to for comfort because the other side of grief is love right and so i would i would return to my grief and this story of my father to remind myself of this, this love that I had for the years that he was alive. And so, so that revelation really sort of, it really set me off on, on sort of a downward spiral because I felt like if I didn't have that story and if I was unsure, you know, there was so much about who I was that I was unsure of in terms of my identity. And if that was being taken away from me too, it felt like too much to bear at the time.
0: There's something that every New Yorker will identify with, and it is walking down the street and seeing a piece of furniture that's been left out for collection or usually for some other sucker to, like, take care of. When I first moved to New York um, on Rivington, I found a chair that I dragged back to my apartment, and I, I loved this thing. You have a similar experience and I'd love for you to share it with us and how this piece of furniture that you find is kind of a a, a home or a catalyst for very introspective thoughts on your behalf.
1: Yeah. So shortly after this revelation from my stepmother, and I was also going through a breakup at the same time. And so just in a really bad place and just realizing how much of my grief um, about my father's death, of my mother's leaving. I was still estranged from my mother. I had not seen her since I was very young, before my father died. I was going on these really long walks because I just didn't, I couldn't sit still, but I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I was kind of wandering around New York um, when I didn't have to work or be in school kind of aimlessly. And I was walking home from a, one of those very long walks to my apartment in Chinatown. And I saw this blue rocking chair on the road. I didn't know it was a rocking chair at first, but I, I saw this chair and it was kind of, I'm very, I'm a petite person, you know, I'm only 5'1", and it was a small chair. And so I was like, oh, look at that small chair. Um, it, it's an armchair and it looks really comfortable and it's just my size and my room was small. And so I went to inspect it and found out that it was a rocking chair. And going back to my father's study, my father always had a rocking chair in his study. We always had rocking chairs in our homes and he would sort of sit on them and rock and tell me stories. And when I was really small, I would sit on his lap while we um, kind of talked and he told stories to me. And so there was something about that chair that in that moment, I just felt like I really need this. (laughs) Um, And so I I dragged it home and I put it in my room and ultimately it ended up being where I sat for seven days, um, pretty much not leaving my room except to kind of get you know, food or go to the bathroom. but um I really did shut myself into my room because i the anxiety and depression had gone so deep that I couldn't see a way out of it. Um, and in some ways, this chair became sort of a whole country in and of itself where i where I went to grieve and to reckon with my life and try to find my way out of this dark period
0: and during these days, at what point did you reach? For books, for the voices of others, and how did they help?
1: Throughout this period, I was turning to, and even before before I kind of retreated to my room, um, in the weeks leading up to retreating, I was reading a lot of memoirs and a lot of stories about madness because I had this feeling that there was madness inside of me that was it was only a matter of time before it came to the forefront, and I would only be able to run from it for so long. And so I started reading these memoirs of depression and madness, um, and also turning to poetry, kind of try and find some grace as well. Um, and so much of the time that I was, you know, locked in my room, I was scribbling down my own feelings, you know, doing some, some very uh, free writing, uh, journaling, um, and also turning to both books and music to see if I could see myself reflected and find any answers um, for a path forward for myself.
0: Was there any writer that spoke to you very strongly at, at that point?
1: So I, I remember reading Siren's memoir, Darkness Visible, and I was really struck by his description of the physical nature of his depression because I really was feeling, um, and I didn't know to call it depression necessarily, um, because it felt, I knew that I had uh, been depressed for a long time, you know, and I was on medication for depression and anxiety, but this felt different. It felt physical. It felt like I couldn't move. There was actual physical pain. And so that that memoir really kind of spoke to me in that it helped me to understand what was happening to me.
0: There's a line in the book from around this period and you say, I could not get out of the chair until I had some answers. What were some of the answers that started to come at the end of this shut in?
1: Well, some of it was pushing myself to really see the people in my life and my family, my mother, my stepmother as more than one dimensional as more than characters in my story, and that wasn't you know I didn't go into this sort of reckoning with the with the knowledge that that's what what I was going to come out with, but but I, I really did start to to try and look at the events in my life from other perspectives, to try and sort of open myself up to my story not being the only story. And I feel like that was really important for me because it allowed me to connect with them and to find forgiveness for them, for myself um, in in some ways. And then also this idea that, you know, I didn't have a place to call home had had felt very palpable to me for a long time. And I think through that period, um, one of the things that I began to reflect on was that I actually had multiple homes and that I could find ways in the future to return to them and to connect with them in ways that I might not have been able to. But but I, I, guess, I guess what I would say is that I was writing towards deeper connection and love. And, and that's what I was trying to find for myself. And not that I came out of that period and I was fine and, you know, just like went on into the world and was like a very joyful person in that moment. But I did begin to take steps and, and finding compassion for myself as well. I was very hard on myself too. I felt like a failure a lot of the time. And in part because I felt like this madness was brewing inside me and the messages that I had internalized about mental health and mental health issues. Um, and so finding compassion for myself was also a part of it.
0: And you also talk about how there was a sense of if you started to go inward and really excavate what had happened to you, that the bottom might just drop out of you as an entire human. You had to find compassion for these people that had shaped you and for yourself.
1: Yeah, there's a kind of denial that I think is part of that fight, fight or flight uh, response, you know, where we don't look at the things that are hard. And I spent a lot of years very intentionally not examining that grief. And But the thing is that your body remembers it. And so it was building up in my body. There actually isn't a way to sort of run away from it. And I think that that was part of what I also had to come to terms with, too.
0: There's such a powerful section in the book about code-switching. And what that means to do that. Could you tell us what code switching is for those listeners who don't exactly know what that means and how kind of insidious it can be, but also it's how much of it is a coping mechanism?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think I had always been aware, you know, growing up in so many cultures And, you know, this American accent that I speak in has not been my accent my whole life. My first accent was um, sort of, I'm told, um, I don't remember, but sort of more African. I lived, I was born in Tanzania. My father was Ghanaian. And then when I lived with my aunt in the UK, I actually, until I was maybe 10 or so, um, I don't remember exactly when it shifted, but I had a British accent. Um, But then I went to an American school. And at that age, you're such a sponge. Um, I went to an American international school, actually, in Ethiopia, and that's when my, my accent began to shift to kind of meet my peers and the, my teachers. And so I do have all of these voices that are inside of me, and I also come from all of these cultures that are a part of me. And so I was always aware that I was sort of changing who I was based on sort of where I was and, and the people around me. And that was a very natural thing. I think a lot of people who grow up sort of third culture, meaning like outside of their parents' um, cultures and moving around in a very nomadic childhood the way that I do, a lot of us do that. And I think a lot of people of color do it for other reasons um, as well, um, and myself included in coming to America. Sometimes you code switch because you know that in order to survive in the workplace or to be seen as professional, you know, you're already as a black woman, for example, in my case, there are certain stereotypes that people have about you. And so you're looking for ways to kind of to bust those stereotypes and put on this mask that will be deemed professional And, and so I think, you know, there are all sorts of reasons why people code switch. Some of them I, I, upon reflection are beautiful, because it's like a celebration of our multiplicity. And, you know, one of the things that I was writing towards was that celebration of all of the, the parts of who I am, you know, sometimes when I'm really tired, my accent does get a little confused. And I've been accused of faking accents, and there's shame that is attached to that. But I I sort of am in a place in my life where I kind of reject that now because I do think that that is a part, all of those identities are a part of who I am. But then with the kind of more, as you're saying, insidious reasons why so many people code switch because of, you know, white supremacy, for example, um, I do think that 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 can be really dangerous too because you do you lose parts of yourself because that kind of code switching i think is less about a celebration of all of the parts of you and more sort of a a tamping down of so many parts of you to fit into kind of a cookie cutter mold
0: this also speaks directly to the double consciousness you talk about in your book and the ways that because of the white supremacist kind of The structures of colonialism, too, in many of the countries you've lived in and in the United States, how have you come to grapple with that double consciousness? And is there, are you any more enlightened about how to be just you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think, I do think that there are fault lines in so many of our bodies, you know, as people. And I'm, you know, telling my own story as a black woman as an african woman as you know a biracial woman as somebody who has multiple cultures the descendant of armenian genocide survivors and all of these identities that sort of collide in me but i think the double consciousness in terms of the african identity or the black american identity or black people's identity really comes from the way that our society Um, no matter where you live, is constructed around sort of white dreams and white desires. And we internalize those. There's no way not to internalize them. You know, again, we're all drinking from the same groundwater that has these stories about how we're supposed to be and who we're supposed to be in the world in them. And so the double consciousness is really like, this is my culture and this is who I am sort of among my people. But then there is also this, outside influence that that has also shaped who i am but that i have to be vigilant about and interrogate in terms of how i'm internalizing those stories particularly the harmful narratives that would hold that people like me are lesser than or that black people are inferior and you know colonialism and slavery you know, those histories are present, you know, we are living history, and we're walking with those histories in our bodies, and the world is still shaped by those histories, in terms of who has access to what and opportunities. And, and so yeah, I think that's sort of the double consciousness. And I think, I don't know that I've come to, like all of the answers, but I am more aware that it has to be a constant interrogation, I have to ask myself, um, sort of where does this story that I'm buying into come from? And is it serving me or harming me?
0: Growing up, did you witness your dad grappling with the same double consciousness?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish I had been more aware of it or been able to ask him, you know, but I was so young. But I can say some of what I when I look back now in retrospect, you know, my father, for example, would wear Ghanian print shirts to work. And he was really intentional about standing fully in his identity as a Black man and and as a Ghanian man. And he also spoke to me a lot about Pan-Africanism. You know, he always taught me about colonialism and at the same time wanted me to understand that the culture that he came from, you know, he's from the Ashanti tribe of Ghana, had a long history before the colonizers um, showed up. And so in retrospect, looking back on it, that was him grappling with those realities and trying to communicate to me that you know the world was going to see me a certain way just as the world saw him a certain way, but that I could claim my own identity by understanding my own history and engaging with stories outside of the kind of white gaze.
0: I know we have to let you go soon, but I'm wondering, can you share with us an obsession you have that kind of people in the broader world might not know about you?
1: So actually, it kind of comes up in the book in an interesting way, but um, my father was really into jazz. That was sort of the music that he listened to. And I can remember as a child, particularly the more kind of avant-garde jazz It was very annoying to me when he would play it because there's so much dissonance and I didn't understand and he was always trying to get me to listen to it and he used to say, you know that you just have to listen with different ears. You speak other languages, so that's how you have to approach this. You know, I remember just being like, I would rather like be reading my books right now. <laughs> um, but then when I found myself in this period of depression, I actually found myself turning to jazz and that dissonance actually felt like it was speaking to more of how I was coming to understand the world. And so I, um, after that period in my life, I really did start to listen to a lot more jazz and sort of go to jazz clubs and try to sort of discover this music that my father had loved so much and sort of connect with it in a different way. And actually I ended up marrying a jazz musician. So (laughs) I'm also getting an an education in jazz um, daily, um, just listening to him play and, um, and also the music around my house.
0: Oh, that's so lovely. And I think this might actually answer my last question which is what lights you up?
1: Um, Yeah so art always lights me up you know being around music being around um, books talking about art Um, and also you know in this last year I've really found a lot of comfort in being out in nature. Um, I live in New York um, and usually we live very busy lives and you know, we have places to go. But this last year, we've really, my my husband and I have been sort of driving up to the Catskills and going on these long hikes and just reconnecting with nature, which I've I found really meaningful and sort of meditative in a lot of ways.
0: Nadia, thank you so, so much for being on Lit Up.
1: Thank you so much, Angela. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It's been so great to talk to you.
0: So, so lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Nadia Awusu. Her book Aftershocks is out now, and there's a link to purchase it on our website, lituppodcast.com. You can learn more about Nadia and her other books at nadiaowusu.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time. Bye, everyone.